Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue on with our series in the second half of world history as we continue our discussion of World War I in this 17th podcast on the second half of world history. In the 16th podcast, we looked at the foundation or the setting of what would become a truly colossal war that for its day was truly considered world or global in scope. However, again, as we'll see that this will be dwarfed by an eventual other conflict in the future called the Second World War. So we looked at, again, the overlying reasons that was adding to the tension that eventually led to the breakout of conflict. We looked at the impact of materialism. We looked at the motivation for imperialistic policies by the European and American powers. We discussed the world map and how by 1914, 84% of the world's landmass was gobbled up by a handful of countries along with the United States. We also looked at something else that added to the tinderbox just waiting to explode. That of course being the alliance system, the triple alliances we talked about, that being the countries that run down the spine of Europe, Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Italy. And then we looked at the Triple Entente powers that ran crisscross or in opposition to the alliance. And the Entente powers were Russia, France, and Great Britain. In terms of the prelude to the war itself, we saw how Serbia was going through some independence movements and some civil unrest. The Austro-Hungarians sending Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophia down to more or less make a political statement. When they were assassinated, it turned out that the Serbians made a truly political statement. So as we look on, move on today in our discussion of World War I, remember again, I'm not going to be discussing the individual battles, but how the war unfolded in general terms, and then more importantly, the aftermath of the war and why, sadly, so many historians, and yes, you can count me among them, look at the way World War I was wrapped up or resolved, so to speak, did nothing more than sow the seeds for an eventual Second World War. So as this war moves on and war is declared, remember again that the Austria-Hungarians, they double-checked their alliance system, and they were backed and ready to go. France, Russia, and Great Britain did the same, and as war broke out, the Germans enacted the Schlieffen Plan, which was a lightning fast for its day strike from Germany itself through the Benelux countries, and the Benelux countries, of course, being Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, to attack the northwestern coast of France, and then to eventually encircle Paris and bring the country down. The Schlieffen Plan, at least on paper, was brilliant in a lot of ways. Number one is it capitalized on the physical separation from Great Britain and France itself. 
By cutting off Great Britain, she can own the English Channel up to that point, but she wouldn't be able to get goods or reinforcements onto the continent if the Germans were in her way. So what the Schlieffen Plan was attempting to do was again to strike a barrier between Great Britain and France, again capitalizing on that already physical difference or physical space between the two countries. Why go after Paris? Well, Paris at this time, or the country of France at proper, the argument was that if you encircled and took Paris down, you would by default take the whole country down because Paris was, for the country of France, its political, military, and economic powerhouse. Paris, in other words, was the jugular of France. You don't have to take down an entire country if you can take down one of its key geographical areas or cities. Please remember that, as this will be a central part of not only this conflict, but also, sadly, the conflict known as World War II some few decades later. So that was the plan that the Germans would enact. Again, on paper, it worked out far better than it did in reality. As the Austro-Hungarians would mobilize on Russia's borders, should, so should Russia decide to try to invade, which of course it planned to do, from the east into Germany, the Austro-Hungarians would handle the eastern border, while the Germans would handle the western border, Italy would send in reinforcements where and when needed. All of this, as I say, worked out in the first couple of weeks as the war unfolded. Even though Britain would declare war on Germany and the alliance powers, war was breaking out across the European continent. One of the things I think that surprises my students the most when I cover the Second World War is that the initial public response, not only within Europe, but worldwide, believe it or not, was euphoric. There literally was almost like a breath or a sigh of relief once the conflict started. That, again, can seem surprising because who would ever be excited about war? But the problem is you have to understand it from the being in the shoes of the people at this time in the early 1910s is that tensions, again, were building up. I tried to get into not only uh, stress that in more than one way in the prior podcast as well as now, idea that war could break out was almost as unnerving as war itself. So by the time the hostilities began, the uncertainty was over. So now that the hostilities broke open, the assumptions by political powers that be throughout the world is that this would be a conflict that would be over roughly in four to six months. As we know, sadly, that wouldn't be nowhere, it wouldn't be anywhere near the actual case. Remember again that alliance and Entente geography? Because of that, as the Austro-Hungarians and the Russians began to be their hostilities, it quickly mired down into what we call a war of attrition, which I'll discuss in a moment. The problem was also on the Western Front, that the German Schlieffen Plan, again, was far more effective on paper than it was in reality. And as a result, the Germans against the French and the British, who reinforcements were arriving in the southern ports of France, was also being bogged down into a war of attrition. Please note, a war of attrition is mistakenly known as perhaps the least deadly of conflicts, when in fact the exact opposite is true. 
Outside of raining down nuclear weapons on an enemy country, a war of attrition is generally considered one of the deadliest forms of conflict. The reason being is that if you can imagine, rather than me naming countries specifically, but if you can imagine just a line on a map separating country A from country B, a war of attrition works something like this. A gets the upper hand and starts invading into country B. And over the next four to six months, maybe makes somewhere with a hundred mile inroad into occupied country B. But then B, because it's being pushed further into its own supply lines and reinforcements, A is being further extended from her reinforcements and supply lines, A becomes weaker and B becomes stronger. As a result, after four to six months of A making serious inroads, B is able to strike back, not only push country A back to its original borders, but then starts making inroads into country A and likewise starting to occupy its border territories. But likewise, just as the case before, B, the, further, the more quote-unquote successful B is militarily, the further away it is from its supply lines, reinforcements, etc. Likewise, A becomes stronger. This goes back and forth over a period of several months, if not in the case of World War I, several years. But there's one horrifying reality that we tend to forget when we look at a war of attrition. Yes, on the map, it may appear as though no country is gaining a significant upper hand. We automatically and falsely conclude that it must be a relatively tame conflict, when in fact the opposite is true. When B pushes back on A and A pushes back on B over several months and years, you don't get those bodies back. Those soldiers that died, either B defending its own country or B trying to invade A and vice versa, those soldiers that are killed, there's no automatic reset button. Once B pushes back to its natural boundary, yes, geographically, militarily, politically, every button has every reset button has been pressed, except for the most important one, human life. And I'm on not only the soldiers that are killed, but the civilians that are killed as well, women and children and the elderly. Likewise, imagine the land that is being just pulverized by an increasing violent form of warfare. Harbors are blown out and destroyed. That doesn't automatically get reset with the push of a button. That's going to take months, if not years, to rebuild. As a result, it's no surprise that the economies from both countries plummet. The international community gets even more tense. And with the economies going through the tank, or tanking as a result, imagine the widespread starvation and dehydration from potable water lines being blown away and a long time before they can be restored. So this is largely how World War I, when it breaks out on July 28, 1914, this is largely how it will play out for the next four years. On the high seas, Britain and Germany, it's so desperate to try to get the upper hand, will simply engage in unrestricted warfare. In other words, if there is a vessel on the surface of the water that is not on a German map, 
is not in German intel. It simply gets hit, if possible. Britain was engaging in the same thing. Why then do we look down on Germany for engaging in this unrestricted warfare rather than Great Britain, who both were employing the same ruthless tactics? Because number one, Germany would turn out to be America's enemy, as we know, but also because in May of 1915, when the Lusitania was sunk and 118 Americans on board died out of the 1,198 overall that died. And one might ask, ask to themselves, yeah, you know, I remember covering that in high school history or college history, but I never remember the investigation or anything that came as a result. You're exactly right, because Amer the American president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson did not demand an inspection. He did not demand an investigation. Number one, because we already knew who brought down the vessel, Germany. From that angle, an investigation isn't necessary. But we also knew something else. There were American goods on board that were supposed to be aiding the war effort for Great Britain. Remember that initially the United States of America, reflecting the Monroe Doctrine of December 2nd, 1823, states we're not going to get involved in European affairs, yet secretly we were, as President Wilson sought to back Great Britain and France specifically. His successors down the road, Franklin Roosevelt, will do the same thing as we'll see in the, uh, in the opening days of World War II. But with the United States warning to Germany to reduce its ruthlessness in bringing down unknown vessels, initially Germany did back down. But a stalemate was obvious as 1915 rolled into 1916 and early 1917, that a stalemate between both alliances was simply a given now, as the death tolls again continued to skyrocket day after day, month after month, and year after year. Germans announced the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare by the beginning of 1917, as well as Great Britain in a lot of ways, and France. Please remember again that by 1917, this war has been raging for almost three full years. Because of that, these countries' treasuries are being depleted. They are desperate for a win. It didn't help when Russia pulled out of the war and against the alliance powers, although she did not go to war against France or Great Britain. The fact that France and Great Britain lost an ally and in the middle of the Eurasian continent, they thought was a military setback that they would never overcome. But that's when the United States stepped in, as we'll see, and attempted to try to offset that balance. The United States declared war on Germany when Russia pulled out of the war. Please note that in November of 1916, President Woodrow Wilson was up for re-election and he ran on the campaign promise that I kept your sons and daughters home from the war. I kept America out of the war. He gets reelected, as we know, in 1916, takes the oath of office on March 4th of 1917. Is it any surprise that 32 days later, bam, President Wilson commits American soldiers to the European war effort? Please note that at this point in the conflict, there is over 10 million dead and well over 20 million wounded. When the United States stepped in, 
we would continue to engage in the conflict for the next roughly year and a half. There would be significant battles, but it would also still be a war of attrition in so many ways. But the war ultimately would come to an end with what appeared to be a neutral agreement between the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians and the French, the Americans, and the British. However, that was not to stay. The British and the French, they wanted revenge at the end of the conflict. They wanted to enact, enact serious, grave penalties on the Germans as well as the Austro-Hungarians. Nobody was more aware of that than President Wilson himself. And that's the reason why he arrived in Europe to a massive ticker tape parade and a parade of high honors receiving the American president that so many in France and Great Britain truly looked as the savior that righted the balance when Russia pulled out of the war, America, it was viewed, saved the day. Wilson brought forth, as a foreign policy expert himself, he brought forth 14 points that he wanted to see included in the resolutions that would bring the First World War to a close, as was initially agreed on November 11th of 1918, when the hostilities were scheduled to end. That's what gives us that famous time of the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, when the guns largely went silent on both sides as some attempt at a peace treaty would be formulated. The Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, however, had no idea of the political capital that Great Britain and the United and France had with the United States on their side. However, what nobody predicted was the way that that American president with his 14 points was initially so widely accepted and then ultimately rejected, leaving Europe arguably as a broken statesman. Why? What happened with those European powers that they were initially accepting of American intervention and then ultimately rejected it as the treaties of Versailles were drawn up and signed? First and foremost, and it might be argued that the only real reason why Great Britain and France quickly turned a cold shoulder to President Wilson was because of the numbers. If we look at the casualty, both deaths and injuries, by November of 1918, I'm not only going to rattle off the numbers to you, I'm going to give that as a percentage of the population that was lost. For France, and starting out with the Alliance power, the Entente powers, France lost 1.4 million soldiers. That was 4.3% of its population. Great Britain lost 885,000, 2.2% of its, again, population. There were over 2 million Germans lost, 3.8% of its population, and 1.1 million Austro-Europeans that's 3% of its population. How did that compare to the United States? It's not as though we committed to the war with no casualties. Far from it. We lost 116,516. 
In other words, if we look at that as a, look at that number as a percentage of our population, while France again 4.3, Great Britain 2.2, Germany 3.8, Austro-Hungarians 3.0, the United States lost point. 13% of our population, 0.13. Please, I'm not minimizing the loss of life that the American families had to suffer, not at all. But it was these drastic different numbers that the Europeans had no stomach for what appeared to be this too peaceful approach that President Wilson was attempting to try to orchestrate. With that, the as President Wilson was largely shown the door, leaving the continent of Europe, that left a free hand for Great Britain and France to truly engage in their policies of revenge. The Ottoman Empire would be abolished forever with the country of Turkey emerging. With the peace conferences at Versailles, the difficulties and challenges that would lie ahead for the next several months. Nationalism would be the name of the, be the name of the game throughout the entire peace process. Nationalism meaning the pride in one's country, but in this case, at the expense of the losing countries. There would be a huge land grab by France gobbling up important strategic and economic territories from the losing power of Germany. The peace conferences ultimately turned into a contest of idealists represented by President Wilson versus revengeful realists, which were the diplomats representing Great Britain and France. And ultimately, they would dominate the peace conferences. What about Russia and Germany, you might ask? What about them? They were simply excluded from the conferences until the very end when Germany would be forced to sign the final peace treaty on a passenger car that was sent in from France to pick up the German diplomats, bring them into Paris, force them to sign those peace treaties with zero discussion, put back on that rail car, and then dumped back into the country of Germany. That passenger train car would then be brought back to France proper, into Paris, where a museum would be made commemorating the war, and that passenger rail car would then be part of its museum displays as a constant reminder of the German humiliation of surrender. Listeners, I ask you to remember this little part of the rail, that passenger rail car because that rail car is going to come back and haunt the French in a way that they never could have predicted. Also at the peace conferences, the League of Nations would be developed. The League of Nations was a brainchild of President Wilson. It was formed to prevent any further aggression. You might say, wait a minute, that sounds familiar from earlier podcasts. You're absolutely right. Glad they definitely were paying attention to those. It sounds like the Congress of Vienna, the Concert of Europe, all these organizations to try to put a diplomatic table so that these world powers can try to eliminate any military conflict. And yes, as we know, this will also end with an abysmal failure. But that was the reason it was formed. 
However, another weakness of the League of Nations was that no guidelines were ever established for the quote-unquote proper use of force. Secondly, how do you form an international league of something of that size and notoriety when the United States is not allowed to be a part of it because of Republicans back in the United States Congress that want to back the Monroe Treaty that says we are not going to get involved? The president of the United States, yes, he committed us to war. But that's over now, and the United States doesn't want to be part of any European organizations that are, even if they're a benevolent nature, of trying to eliminate war. Russia, that went through a civil, a brief civil war in and of itself to come out at the end of it, known as the USSR, the Union of Soviet Social Republics, a republic, that the Soviets now, where Russians is one of the largest countries, of course, of that republic, also is not allowed to, bar- to participate. And then we get into the German punishment. France would take the Tsar Basin in the southwestern portion of, France, of, of Germany, as well as the Rhineland. These are strategic areas that were extremely important to Germany that now would be controlled by the country of France. Germany would be responsible for the entire war debt as well as the Austrian-Hungarians for what economic participation they might be able to play. But they would be responsible for that war debt, a war debt that, that without being adjusted for inflation, was $778 billion. And they also had very limited military defenses. This is why the Germans, the Austro, and the Hungarians felt so vulnerable in the 1920s with having a very minimal defense establishment to protect itself. We end then by looking at what the ultimate effects were of this truly, for its day, global conflict. And here's where I'm somewhat again reviewing the war in its entirety. As a result of the conflict, we saw the way that one new form of weaponry would trigger another form of weaponry to counter it. The machine gun, or Gatling gun as it was known. The machine gun had a way of mowing down more soldiers than an entire group, or 80, if you want to use a hard number, 80 Civil War soldiers could do on a Civil War battlefield in the United States between 1861 and 1865. That's right, one machine gunner was just as effective as 80 Civil War soldiers. How do you stop a constant barrage of bullets coming at you? On ground, you can't. Outside of hiding between a a, a structure like a tree or hill, rock outcropping, what have you, but on flat land, there's nowhere you can go except down. Hence the idea now what becomes known as trench warfare. While those trenches may have protected the soldiers on both sides from bullets coming from the enemy, it could not protect them from the enemies that lurked below the ground, soldiers that were injured and died and are now rotting in these trenches, the flooding from rains and natural groundwater that were seeping up, the rotting bodies attracting rodents like rats, snakes, and other vermin, Mosquitoes that would be plaguing these soldiers relentlessly. Trench warfare 
was the definition, as one soldier said, of hell on earth. How do you get the soldiers out of the trenches? The trenches was a large part of the reason why there was a war of attrition. The only way you can get them out is if bullets can't do it. You have to make them want to run out of the trenches. Hence the advent, on a colossal scale, of the use of poison gas. By poison gas, we're talking initially with things like mustard gas that not only deteriorated soft surfaces of the skin, it played wreaked havoc on the vocal cords, the throat, and larynx of the average human being. Chlorine gas also having its devastating effects. How do you counter this? You get into body suits, hazmat suits, but now your ability to try to defend yourself is compromised because your range of vision is also compromised. It's bulky to try to fight in those kinds of suits, in those kind of protection. We also see the advent of tanks on a common basis, as well as various forms of aircraft to be able to assess the battlefield. And then, of course, you know the, which, which, how this would continue to progress, dropping bombs over enemy territory. And then finally, the advent of the submarine. Because being on the water, they figured, figured out quickly, there is simply no way to hide on the water. But what about below the water? So this is just a quick replay of just some of the brand new weaponry that were coming out of this conflict, causing the human soldier to have to fight in a different way. That brings us to the end of our discussion on World War I. When we return in the next podcast, we're going to find out just what was going on over in Russia that they pulled out of the war at such a dangerous time. And how did that massive landmass called Russia suddenly get a new name called the USSR. So these, amongst other things, is what we'll be discussing in the 18th podcast. Thanks for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.